Well, good morning. I'm Jacob Yarbrough, an elder here at Calvary Bible Church. And for our scripture reading today, we're in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'll be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And I'm using the New American Standard Version 1995 edition, and I would like to invite you to follow along with me as I read. Starting in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Thank you, Jacob. Well, good morning, all. It's good to be here with you all. Um, my name is Byron Brash. I'm the pastor here. If you have any questions about Calvary Bible Church, feel free to see me after the service today. Uh, I would just like to begin with a quote. This is a quote from uh, Tommy Nelson, a pastor in Denton, Texas. And he was preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I kind of grabbed on to this one quote to kind of summarize the whole book. He says this, don't let what you cannot control ruin what you can enjoy. Let me say that again. Don't let what you cannot control ruin what you can enjoy. Today we are continuing on our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And we are in our sixth week of probably a 14-week series. And just, just allow me to share, as, as mentioned before, many, many pastors stand behind pulpits Afraid to be honest with people. Um, for example, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this one, uh, how many of you like to talk about death? Okay, right. Okay, probably no one, but that's kind of the centerpiece of the gospel, right? Because of sin, we introduce death into the world, and he gives us eternal life. Preachers really don't like to talk about that side of things. Preachers on behind pulpits are afraid to really tell people the honest truth. But I can't be afraid of that. And what I see in the book of Ecclesiastes, the main character that we see is the preacher himself, Kohelet, which is the name of the book itself in Hebrew. The preacher is not afraid to be honest. If you've been here for any time period in the book of Ecclesiastes, then you know something. You know that it's almost so blunt, it's cringy. You know, have you ever met those kind of people where they're like, ooh, just dial it back just a little bit, man. Okay, that's the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just blunt and honest truth. I, I had a, I was meeting for lunch with a friend of mine this week who goes to church here. And he said to me, Byron, I just got to be honest with you. Every sermon you've preached in the book of Ecclesiastes, I have hated. <laughs> and I, I, before I cried a little bit... Um, uh, anyways, I say, I say, what do you mean by that? He said, Byron, you just keep messing up my stuff. 
You know, you keep challenging my paradigms, challenging the way that I see life. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. It just challenges all of our for granted. It, what it does is it kind of takes all of our compartments that we live in, our work compartment, our family compartment, our, our, our personal life compartment, and just kind of blows them all open and challenges all of our paradigms that we see life through. But the reason it does that is because the truth will set you free. We feel comfortable can we just be honest with ourselves? We feel comfortable. It makes us feel comfortable to have our little compartments in life. We have, we have the church compartment, and we have the Jesus compartment, and we have this compartment. But the truth will make you free. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes really does. And I hope that you know that I speak the truth in love, that I'm not coming across as condemning or as I'm just blunt. Okay, That's what the scripture is. But I'm going to make a statement to begin this morning. Fearing God is the foundation of a healthy, growing relationship with God. I'm going to repeat that. I want to say yes or no if you agree with that. Fearing God is the foundation of a healthy, growing relationship with God. Today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, that is a central theme, the fear of the Lord. And what we see is we can bring our requests before God, we can bring our objections, we can bring our questions about the injustices of life that we all experience. That if God is truly in control, why, Lord, did you bring this to my life? Why, Lord, did you allow this diagnosis? Why, Lord, did you allow this? That we, God invites us to bring before him all of our questions, all of our concerns, all of the questions of the injustices of life under the sun. He wants us to bring it before him. But let us also heed the warning that we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 to fear the Lord. But we have one thing that stands in our way of really having a healthy fear of God. What stands in our way? We think fear is a bad thing. We have been trained in our culture to, when I say the word fear, what automatically pops up in your mind? It did in my mind. Uh, horror movies, okay, Freddy Krueger, okay, all these horror movies, all these fears that we have. But that is not a healthy form of fear. But there is a healthy form of fear. Allow me to just ask you the question. And you can respond if you don't want to. That's cool. I'll just stand up here alone and stare at you. It's cool. Um, what are some things that we as human beings are afraid of? What are some things that we fear? What? Heights, you said? Yep. <laughs> we were just talking about Aegis Landing. That's right. Everybody hiked the top of Half Dome. That's pretty terrifying too. What else? What are some other things we fear? Spiders. What else? Getting in trouble. I, I, what'd you say, Bonnie? Death. Good. What else? What? Yeah? Chronic illness. What are some other things we fear? Failure. I want to show you something. All right. I, I plan to introduce this later. In, but I went on the Internet and found a list of all the phobias that we have in the human race, all the ones that people put names to. Okay? Now, you can believe everything on the Internet. But, um, but there's like... On here, it says the fear of chickens, okay? Don't eat KFC, I guess, right? I mean, the fear of spiders, arachnophobia. You have the fear of clowns, okay? Anybody else see a movie in the 80s? Okay, um, the fear of germs, vermophobia. 
We have all sorts of things that we, there's like pages and pages of this, by the way. If you want to look later on, you're welcome to. But we have pages and pages, all these things we fear. And so what we do is then we associate the word fear with something that is unhealthy, something that's out to get me. But the foundation of a healthy relationship with the Lord is the fear of God. And that's what we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And, and if you have your text, go ahead and turn there with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Today we're really just looking at verses 1 through 7. But I'm going to make another statement. As Christians, we fear what we shouldn't and do not fear what we should. As Christians, we fear what we shouldn't and do not fear what we should. My sermon today is going to be in two different parts. Part one is really going to be breaking down the text of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. If you've been here, we've gone verse by verse, chapter through chapter, through the whole book of Ecclesiastes to this point. And we'll cover the book in probably about 14 weeks, and today is the sixth week in our series. But what you see today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, is you see Solomon's perspective of the fear of God through the lens of the temple. Part two is going to be our perspective, our picture of the fear of God through the lens of the cross. That God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but our relationship with the Lord has changed through the cross of Jesus Christ. But before we begin, let us kind of reorient ourselves uh, in the, where are we in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I do this every week. I kind of share the lay of the land for two reasons. Number one, if you haven't been here the whole series, then you kind of catch up to everybody else. But then number two comes from my father-in-law, who's here today. He says that repetition is theological glue. It helps us, it helps us stick into our mind. So what is the overall theme of the book of Ecclesiastes? It is implicit in the text. It is what? A life well lived. That the 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes is designed to give us wisdom on how to have a great life in our 80 years under the sun. And what we see is that there are five principles that every passage either indirectly or directly deals with. That number one, that to have a great life under the sun, we must embrace the fact that life is short. That one day you're going to wake up and be 60 or 40 or 37 How in the world did that even happen? Where did my hair go? Okay? That one day that you will have to embrace that just life is short. So what? Seize the day. Live for today and not for tomorrow. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your kids. Enjoy your home. Enjoy your job. Find a way to enjoy the toil that you have under the sun. Number two, we should embrace that simply life is just unfair. And that is so tragic. It really is. We want justice. Amen. That we just want things to be made right. That if I do this, then God will do this. But it's just simply not the case. That's why, number three, that we should enjoy God's blessings. But let us balance that out with the other two that the author concludes with in the end of the book. That we are to fear God. And we're going to talk about what that means today. That we are to fear God and that we are to keep His commandments. And if you've been here, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are simply magnificent. If you have your text, I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. I'm not going to read too much so I don't drown you too much. But chapter 1 and chapter 2 really just unpacks the futility of life without God. Friends, man... I, um, 
I've been meditating on the book of Ecclesiastes probably for five or six months now. And the more and more I meditate, the more and more I realize that it is just truth. That we run to things in the world to give us satisfaction. Even we as Christians, even we as quote-unquote good people, we run to things in the world to give us some sense of satisfaction and enjoyment. And if you see in chapter 2, what does Solomon says? He puts to test all these different things to see if they bring him lasting fulfillment. He tests laughter. He tests wine. He tests sensuality. He tests possession. He tests all these things. And what is his conclusion? That they are all vanity, hevel, a, a vapor in the wind, that they appear to be satisfying, but in the end... They leave you poorer, and they leave you maybe with a hangover, okay? That's just the truth. Chapter 2, verse 24. This is his conclusion in chapter 1 and chapter 2. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without the Lord? Friends, listen to me. The only source of lasting fulfillment in life under the sun comes from God and from Him alone. We can run to all of the different vices of the world, but it will only leave you empty and unsatisfied. Then in chapter 3, what does he talk about? He talks about the different seasons of life. right? You have a spring of life, you have a summer of life, you have a fall of life, and you have a winter of life and then all of this all of seasons we can experience different things there's times of mourning times of sickness times of death there's just different seasons within seasons themselves and what is his conclusion in verse 16 and 17 that in all things in all periods of life what do we know to be true that god is sovereign that he has control over all seasons of life despite our world and our lives seeming out of control But then in verse 17 of chapter 3, hands go up. Objections to that idea occur. How can God be sovereign? How can God be just? And then there are all these injustices in the world. So Solomon in verse 17, 4, 1, 4, 4, 4, 7, and 4, 14, he looks at all of these different injustices. He says, I have seen, I have seen, I have seen. And he answers every one of them. That despite our world, God is still in control over even... We all experience things in life that we feel like we did not deserve. And listen, friends, that when we experience injustice, what should we do? Instead of taking that bitterness and that anger and that resentment, and those questions, and stuffing them down deep into your heart and into your mind, what does chapter 5 tell us to do? It tells us to approach God with our concerns, with our questions. But when we approach God with our concerns, with our questions, with our gripes, let us remember who He truly is. How many of you have ever known a Christian? That's a good question. How many of you have ever known a Christian that will not attend church because at one time God did not behave? That's Grant Bradshaw, okay? I share about my father often. My dad, I believe, was a true Christian. He was a believer in Jesus Christ. 
He had it all together. He had all his dominoes lined up. His kids went to Christian school. His kids went to this church, a good church that preaches the scripture. He had it all together. And then his life went down the tubes like the Titanic, okay? And then he just forsook it all. He blamed God and walked away. We all, friends, listen to me. If you live long enough, you will experience injustice in life. Amen? It's just true. But when you do, don't just bury it away in a compartment of your life. Approach God. Talk to Him. Today, Solomon says to approach the Lord through the lens of the temple, but we approach God through the lens of the cross. So if you have your text, chapter 5, Solomon tackles the fear of God. And today, really what I want to happen is I really want to have a paradigm shift. I really want to change our understanding of the fear of God, that fearing God is, the, is a healthy thing. It is a good thing. It's not a horror movie, okay? It's not just terror. But the fear of God is a healthy thing. It is, a, it is the foundation of a healthy relationship with God. But let us define that first. What do I mean by the fear of God? What do I mean by the fear of God? We, we take this low view of fearing God, that we, we say that fearing God is only a respect or reverence for God. What's the fallacy in that, okay? That, that we respect what? We revere athletes, 18-year-old kids who play for Alabama football and idolize them. Um, they're moving on. Um, strange. Okay. Problems. Okay. Okay. We, we, re, we revere and we respect leaders of organizations, that's not what the fear of God is. I believe this, that we should legitimately fear God, but in a healthy way. The fear of the Lord, I'm just going to kind of unpack it. The fear of God says three times the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that is usually our understanding of what it means to fear God. But if you were actually to look at the word fear in the Old Testament, you'll see that the fear of God has wide-ranging implications. I'm going to quickly uh, shotgun it all to you, machine gun it. Okay. Psalm 34:11 says, The fear of the Lord is something to teach your children. Psalm 90, verse 11, The fear of God is his due. Proverbs 2.5, fearing God discovers knowledge of God. Proverbs 10.27, fearing God prolongs your life. Fearing God gives you confidence. Fearing God gives you life. Fearing God is instruction for wisdom. Proverbs 16.6, fearing God keeps one away from sin. 19.23, fearing God leads to life. Proverbs 22, verse 4, fearing God is the reward is rewarded with riches, honor, and life. Proverbs 23, 17, fearing God is for always. Let me put it all together for you. Fearing God prolongs your life, gives you confidence, keeps you from sin, unveils the knowledge of God. So what is the conclusion? Fearing the Lord is a good thing. But we still haven't answered our question. What is to fear God? If you have your Bible, Proverbs 8, 13 is probably the best single verse on the fear of the Lord, just kind of what it actually is. And I'm going to read it in the text this morning. Proverbs 8.13 says this, if I can get there. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way in the perverted mouth, The fear of the Lord is to what? Is to reject sin. 
that we are so enthralled, we are so aware of God's character, God's justice, God's dismissal, this hatred of sin, that it causes us then to resist it and reject sin. If you have your notes, what is the fear of God? His just character causes us to reject sin, Proverbs 8.13. As a child, I feared my father. You don't have to raise your hand, but if anybody else feared their dad as a kid, then you relate. Um, I was scared of the man, okay? I knew when he was on the phone. Anybody else? He was on the landline days. Anybody else even know what a landline is? Okay? Um, old school. When, I was on, when he would be on the phone and us kids were playing, he would every once in a while snap his fingers. And what did that mean? It mean, be quiet. Whenever my dad told me to do something, I feared him and I probably did it. I remember my dad made... Okay, so... He was a great father, okay, so don't think twice about him. But my dad made a customized paddle, okay, just for me, I think, okay. He built this thing. He woodshopped this paddle. It, was about, it looked like about that long as a kid, but it was really about that long, and he stored it on top of the fridge, okay. I feared my father, and I obeyed him, but I also knew him, that my father was a good father who loved me, who listened to me, who heard me out, who wanted me to approach him with, his, with my concerns and questions. That is an image of our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father should be feared, but we should also approach him with all of our requests. So number one, to fear God is a rejection of sin. But then if you have your text, Solomon gives us two more cautions. Now remember, where are we? That in chapter 3 and chapter 4, hands are going up. Objections to God is sovereign, that God is just in chapter 3. Hands are going up, and all of these questions are popping up. And this is what Solomon's caution when we have questions about faith. Verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, guard your steps as you go into the house of God. What is his perspective on the fear of the Lord? Guard your steps as you go into the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. What is the fear of the Lord? Number one, it is a rejection of sin. And is number two, it is listening over speaking. If you notice in your text, guard, that word guard in the Hebrew means keep or to observe or to be mindful. But keep in mind, Solomon's perspective on the fear of God is that God is in a particular location. We are a little bit different. We do not see the fear of the Lord through the temple like Solomon. We see the fear of the Lord through the cross. But when we have concerns, what is Solomon saying here? Solomon is not saying, do not approach God. He doesn't say that. He says, when you have concerns about the unfairness of life or the injustices that you experience, that when life seems to be unfair, what should you do? You should approach God. But remember to reject sin and to listen to God over speaking to him. Verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dreams come through much effort and the voice of fools through many words. When we approach God, when we pray, it is better to remember that he is in his place and we are in our place and that we should listen over speaking. But approach him. Don't just stuff your concerns down in the bottle, in the bottom of your heart and mind. Don't do that. 
that will boil up like a cancer. I've seen it in my own personal life. I've seen it in my family history. If you take the injustices and the unfairness of life and you stuff it down, one day you will just grow in bitterness and resentment to the world. And you will grow in your resentment and bitterness towards God. And it will eventually cause you to walk away. Approach God. He is a good father who wants to know, who wants to hear from his children. But let us, when we approach him, let us listen over speaking. Prayer often becomes a one-way street, not a two-way conversation. The Spirit of God, the Scripture says to walk by the Spirit. The Spirit of God speaks to you as a Christian. He speaks to us in our minds, often like our conscience. The Spirit of God puts thoughts into our minds that are within the bounds of Scripture, usually outside of our norm, that give you relevant, timely instruction. What is the fear of God? It is to reject sin. It is to listen over speaking. In verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. Number 3, it is to pay our vows. How many of you have ever known somebody that owed you money? Anybody ever known that before? Okay. They vowed to pay you. What is, can I just speak to the emotion of that real quick? So I own some real estate here in town, and there is, I shouldn't say this on, online, but there is a tenant of mine that is, it's a, what, the 24th of July, and she still hasn't paid rent. Okay. So what does that do in my being? It makes me irritated. Okay. All right. How many of you have ever, and you know how to raise your hand is, how many of you have ever made a vow to God and not paid it? How many of you have ever made a vow to God for money or to serve him or to do this or that or this or that and not paid him? It says the fear of the Lord is to be conscious of our vows and do not be late paying it. I'm going to share a story. I was, um, I was 19 years old and I got my call to ministry to be in full-time ministry right here at Calvary Bible Church. It's crazy. That, that was 18 years ago. I mean, that just blows my mind. That 18 years ago, right here in this church, I got my call to full-time ministry. But I did not enter full-time ministry. I was late paying it, okay? So it's, just pay it, okay? Anyways, I was late paying it. I got the call to full-time ministry at 19 years old, and I did not enter full-time ministry until I was 28 years old. But keeping that vow, following God, my livelihood, my passion, my desire is to do the very thing that I do right now. Keeping that vow to enter full-time ministry was the third best decision of my life. Number one was to believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Number two was marrying my wife, Laurel. And number three was entering into full-time ministry to serve him without end. When we make a vow to God... Let us not be late in paying it, but it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. It's what the scripture says. But the Lord, I'm just, I'm just going to reflect upon life. The Lord will put convictions in your heart. He will say, John or Joe or Ashley or Bethany, I want you to do X. He will put convictions in your heart and God will put you to the test. And he will test you to see if your faith is big enough to follow. 
The Spirit of God will leave you in that test. Can I just say, the Spirit of God will plant ideas into your mind, give you convictions to follow the Lord, start a church, be in church leadership, follow the Lord in full-time ministry. He will convict you in your heart to do something. But think about it before you pay the, before you commit to that vow. But he will place you in that space. And he will leave you there until either you follow or you just continue on in that same test indefinitely. I'm not going to ask you... How many of you have ever felt like the Lord tested you with something and he continues to test you in that field until you finally get the right answer? Can anybody relate to that? <laughs> okay, I got a hand. That's right. God will place in your mind and in your heart convictions, that vows that you need to make before the Lord. Some of us do just believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He will place you in that. He will put that thought in your mind and he will leave you there. Until you finally surrender, until you finally follow him in the path he has. Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools, pay what you vow. What does he call people who are late in paying vows? Verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Notice verse 5 again. It is better that you should not pay than that you should pay, that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. Let me just say something. How many of you have ever seen a person walk the aisle and never change? They walk right out that door. They say at a particular moment in time, I listened to a Billy Graham sermon yesterday on the way back from Florence, okay? They make a commitment. They walk the aisle. They make a vow to God to believe, a believer in Jesus Christ. And they come forward, and then they walk out the door, and they have never changed a bit. We have all known people that, that come forward, that say they believe in Jesus Christ. But can I just say something? If someone claims the cross in a moment, they claim the cross for life. If someone claims the cross in a moment, they claim the cross for life. Take your time before you commit anything to the Lord. Can I, there's a reason why I don't do altar calls. Do I think they're evil? No, of course not. Can God use them? Of course he can. Okay, look at the Billy Graham's crusade. They're wonderful. Many people have come to know the Lord. But there's a reason why I don't do them. I don't want people to feel like I'm twisting their arm to make a vow before the Lord that they are not prepared to keep. I've known so many people, in fact, I would say the majority of people in churches today have an intellectual understanding of the gospel, but have never repented and have never believed in Jesus Christ. That's why they are stagnant. Because they have a vow that they paid to God, but they are delayed in paying it. They've never let the Spirit of God change them, make them born again. Once you claim the cross, you claim the cross for life. It is a life sentence. We must fear the Lord through the cross, not the temple. But I believe verse 6 is still relevant. If you have your text, he says, Why should God be mad on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Let me just ask you the question. Is God, is God a God of love? Please say yes. God is a God of love, and he is a God of justice, amen? That he will judge one day, that he cares if we make mistakes, he cares if we sin. 
but he wants us to approach him. But the problem is, and we in evangelical circles, is that we diminish this in view of this. But the two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And I'll explain why that in just a second. God's character has not changed, but our access to the Father has changed. It says in the scripture in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord disciplines whom he loves. If you have your text, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone. He accepts as his son. And notice the position there that they are a believer in Jesus Christ. So the Lord is not only a God of love, but he also is a God that punishes our, our sins. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. You can't lose that position. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, everyone undergoes discipline, That then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. If you call yourself a Christian, first off, that is a life commitment. Number two, if you call yourself a Christian, then we must relish in the love of God, but also understand that God is a God of justice that punishes sin. Um, I'm debating whether to share a story with you all. Um, I, I have seen people, and I mean this, I've seen two, three people that were stubborn against the will of God and dropped dead. Did they die before me? No. But I saw one man, he was stubborn against the will of God, and about a month later, he got a heart attack and disappeared. I saw another man who was stubborn against the will of God. He got cancer, and he died about a year later. My own father, who is a believer in Jesus Christ, the Lord disciplines whom he loves. He disciplines his children. My father did not like the way his life turned out, so he ran from God for the next 30 years. And as his son, I saw God chasing him. I mean, it was so obvious. And my dad was just so mad and so resentful at the Lord for how his life turned out. That he just rejected him completely over and over and over and over and over again. I'm sitting there as a son, like, just, just accept reality, dad. Like, God is chastening you. He's annoying you until you repent and return. And my dad just kept on going. Until he died at 64. The Lord cares about our sin. If we call ourselves Christians, then we are children of God. And if we sin, there are consequences. Why? Because God is love. He will forgive you. But there are also consequences. Why? Because He is a good Father. He is a good Father who wants what's best for His children. Think about what the book of Ecclesiastes all is. It's all about a life well lived. Part of living a great life under the sun is having a healthy fear of Him. That's what we see. The fear of God is the foundation of a healthy relationship with the Lord. But let us not pause here with Solomon. Let us not stop here. Let us continue on to our perspective on the fear of God. Solomon is seeing the fear of God through the lens of the temple. We see the fear of God through the lens of the cross. We, in evangelical circles, we in evangelical churches, we focus so much on the love of God that we diminish the fear and the justice of God. 
but the two go hand in hand. Let me just ask you a question from a theological standpoint. What is the absolute proof that God is a God of justice? Bingo, is the cross. Romans 5, 8. We look at the cross as only God's love for us, but God demonstrates his own love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What did I just say? Okay, we, we only see the cross as, as evidence of God's love, but it's also an evidence of God's justice. Why? Because someone had to pay. Someone had to pay for the sins of the world. Someone had to atone. And it only could be a perfect, spotless, blemishless lamb. They could take away the sins of the world. For the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Let us change our perspective. Let us change our paradigm. Let us not see the fear of God as something as unhealthy, but it is good. Let us see it as something that we should remember. But let us not be so fearful. Can I just say something else that's not in my notes? Let us not be so fearful of God that we fail to approach him. Because he is both a God of love and a God of justice. If you have your notes, I'm going to quickly go through the last part. Our picture of the fear of God is through the lens of the cross. Who are we as as people? We are sinners who have chosen to rebel against God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who is he? He was perfect, blameless, innocent, and He was sufficient to pay for all of our sin. Hebrews 10, 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Christ Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he was sufficient, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies a footstool for his feet for by one offering he has perfected for all the time those who are sanctified Christ's sacrifice was sufficient since he died since he was perfect since his sacrifice was sufficient now we who believe in Jesus Christ stand before God what justified what does that mean it means being declared innocent of our guilt that justification Because Christ paid my debt of sin in full. Now opens my life up, my soul, to our adoption, our restoration, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, echoing God's love and justice, we now have eternal life. Earthly, abundant life. Access to the Father. And number three, to give us confidence to enter into the holy place of God. What does he mean by that? Yes, God is love. Yes, God is justice. But we should approach the Father with our concerns. Why? Because now we have access. We no longer have to go through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Hebrews ten nineteen. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water through faith in Christ we can have a relationship with God that is real that is relevant 
that is life-giving, that is eternal, that is imperishable, that is adoptive, that is forgiveness, grace, love, mercy, guidance, and abundant life. God is a God of love and God is a God of justice. What does it mean to fear him? Because of his justice, because we know his character, let us approach him. But when we approach him, let us reject sin. Let us listen over speaking. Let us listen to what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us. Number three, let us pay our vows. What is Solomon's point in the book of Ecclesiastes? It is a life well lived. And what is he telling me to do? That living a holy and pure life is what's best. We can look to the world to satisfy our needs, our desires, our egos. We can try to earn all of the promotions in the world. But all of those are vanity as striving after the wind. Solomon's is telling us the best life we have is to fear the Lord, is to care about our sin and the purity in our lives. Our best life is, as Joseph, running from temptations. But let us remember that when we have concerns, when life is just simply unfair, when there are injustices that we can't understand, let us approach the Lord. Let us draw near to him. I'm going to close with this. 1 Peter 1.13 says this, Therefore prepare your minds for actions. Keep sober in spirit, fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, be holy, for God is holy. Before I close, I'm just going to kind of give you some assignments. I'm doing that very intentionally, homework assignments. I know I'm not in school, and I know you're in church, but it's just to help us kind of process the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have uh, your notes, just take them with you. They're on the back of there. But assignment number one is, do you agree with the statement that fearing God is the foundation of a holy, healthy, growing relationship with God? Why or why not? Assignment number two is, why is it essential to fear God? Number three, based on the three markers of fearing God, which is the most difficult for you? To reject sin, to pay your vows, or to listen over speaking and then assignment number four is every week I have challenged us to read through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I hope by this point that you're not depressed when you read, okay? Because it seems to be very pessimistic when you read it initially. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Okay, okay, chapter one. That's just what the feeling is. But really, I hope you see that it's optimistic. The psalm is just trying to be blunt and tell you how to have your best life. So this is what I want you to do. Your last assignment this week is just to read through the book of Ecclesiastes again. And circle all the times you see the word vanity, which means hevel or vapor in the wind. And then hang on to that list. When you have concerns, approach the Father. When you have sin in your life and you need to repent, approach the Father. But when you approach Him, remember His character. That he will forgive you of your trespasses. That he's already paid for them in full. And number two, but let us also remember that he is just. And that he desires for us to live pure and holy lives. Before I close, 
If you do not know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, well, I've already said I don't do altar calls here because I want you to think about it. But Jesus Christ has come and he has died for your sins and paid for your soul in full. That if you would repent, acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your mistakes, acknowledge that you need Jesus Christ, and that if you would believe in him, receive him as your Savior, that you would then have eternal life. Um, I got two minutes. Can I just... I think... Um, there are people here that have heard that all their life. I think there are people here that understand what it means, how you become a Christian. But I think there are a lot of people here that understand it intellectually, but have never let it change them internally. If you, perhaps you know the right answer. Perhaps you know the gospel. Perhaps you know that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. John 3.16, right? But maybe you know it. But maybe you've never been changed by it. Because as I look at the scripture, as I see it, that when you believe, not only is it a lifelong commitment, but you are changed. You are new. You are a new creation. If you've never been changed by the gospel, guess what? You didn't believe in it. It's impossible. It's impossible to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and not be changed. Do not be fooled. Do not let the prince of the power of the air convince you that you are a Christian because you know some facts. Please, examine your life. Guard your steps as you enter into the house of God. Watch yourself, but pay what you vow. Reflect upon your life and accept. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for just the um, honest truth the book of Ecclesiastes is. Um, Lord, I pray that we would know that you are both a God of love and a God of justice, that we can approach you, but Lord, that we would also live holy and pure lives, lives that are dedicated to you, lives that want to serve you. And Lord, I just pray for those that are deceived by the world to think that they may be saved. I pray that they would go home and look at their lives to see if they truly are one of your children, that they have been adopted and changed and transformed and justified before you. Lord, thank you for today. We thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for what you're doing here at our church, how you are changing lives, how the Spirit of God is working. Lord, I just thank you. And we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.